All right, we got to talk about the election and its aftermath. Good God. I've got a huge pile of papers in front of me that we need to go through. But I'm going to put all those on hold for the moment and talk about the election itself. It's Radio Parallax's contention that all other issues are secondary to what took place on Election Day. I would note with mixed emotions that on Election Day, this correspondent sent out an email to, I don't know, a couple dozen people expressing my outrage that certain people like Nate Silver were actually giving Trump a chance of winning because it was so obvious based on polling data that it would take a miracle for him to win the election. And it looks as though a miracle of sorts did take place. We note with a great deal of sadness that we've been beating this horse for (laughs) quite a while. But the fact is, our elections, the election process nationally, is not secure. We all recall what happened back in the year 2000 when, well, basically the national election was stolen by Jeb Bush in Florida. If you take a look at it, and we hope you do, I think you'll satisfy yourself rather quickly that Al Gore was in fact elected president in 2000. He did win the popular vote, and unfortunately, in the wake of the Help America Vote Act in 2002, it looked to us as though the deck was being stacked for a possible second election theft in 2004, which, as we report in this program years ago, we believe took place. The battleground in this case was not Florida, although they may well have stolen Florida, but everybody assumed they would, but rather Ohio. You're listening to KZFR 90.1 FM, Chico. Without belaboring this too much, let's just jump forward to 2016. Investigative journalist Greg Pallast, who we've had on the show three times and need to get on again pronto, noted many years back that the Republicans were working very hard to exclude people from being able to vote, and in doing so could swing a few key states. In our opinion, there's no doubt whatsoever that this was instrumental in what happened on Election Day. Hundreds of thousands of people in key states like North Carolina were excluded from the voting rolls. Nevertheless, if you look at the polling data, and in particular, the exit polling data, you must conclude, dear listener, that something doesn't smell right. Without getting too deep into it today, let's just run a few numbers, shall we? You will note, of course, that because American elections are not by a popular vote, the outcome depends upon the count in various states and how they vote in the Electoral College. By this correspondence analysis, and by just about everybody else's in the country, Hillary Clinton had a commanding lead and was going to take something like 320 or 330 electoral votes. For Donald Trump to win, he had to take Florida, and he had to take North Carolina, and he had to take Ohio. On top of that, he had to do well in these Rust Belt states of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And we should note with some sadness by way of looking back at election 2004 that, well, exit polls didn't seem to work. At least there was a big discrepancy between exit polls and the final vote count. As happened again here in election 2016. As talked about in this program years back, we would ask you, dear listener, to go back and listen to some of those shows where we talked with people like Bob Fitrakis about uh, vote chicanery. Uh, it, It turns out that The exit polls showed John Kerry in 2004 with a 3% national lead, which somehow, when the votes got counted, turned into a 2.5% plurality for George W. Bush. 
by way of review, we would note that um, if the exit polls were correct and the vote count was correct, then, then it would have been a million to one shot. There are two other possibilities, however. One is that the vote count was wrong. The third being that the exit polls were wrong. Now, people were not too keen back in 2004 to address the possibility, the rather distinct possibility that the vote count had been monkeyed with. And not to relive that whole experience, but we made the case in this program, as was made, as was also made by many other competent researchers, that um, that's what happened. We are therefore more prepared to accept the possibility that it happened again. And if we take a look at some of the key states, the key swing states that um, determined the outcome in 2016, I think you might agree that something seems a bit fishy. It was universally acknowledged that for Donald Trump to be elected president, he had to carry Florida and Ohio. It should be noted that on Election Day, the exit polls showed Hillary Clinton with a 1.3% advantage per those polls. When the votes were counted, it turned out that Donald Trump won by 1.2%. That's a 2.5 percentage point swing. Possible. But when you look at Ohio... Ohio was something of a dead heat, although Trump did have a razor-thin advantage, 0.2% per the exit polls. When the votes were counted, however, it turns out Trump won by a thumping 8.7% margin. That is, in fact, a plurality that is double the margin of error on the exit polling information, which is suspicious, shall we say? Now, one of the reasons that yours truly wrote this letter on Election Day and mailed it around to all of his friends saying that there's no way Donald Trump is going to win was based on the trends that were evident in the polling data. And if you'll bear with me just a moment, I'm going to back into that before we return to the exit polls. But based on the state-by-state estimates right up to Election Day, several key states were not considered even in play. Right on the eve of the election... Hillary Clinton had a seven percentage point advantage in Michigan. She had a six percentage point advantage in Wisconsin, and she had a five percentage point advantage in Pennsylvania. Now, according to conventional analysis, Trump's people, doing some very sophisticated analyses of um, who might be affected, spent a lot of time trying to swing the vote in Michigan. And indeed, when it came to election day, Michigan, despite that wide margin on the eve of the election had narrowed. It was an absolute toss-up. Neither candidate held an edge. So it is possible that when the votes were counted and Donald Trump came out 0.3 percentage points ahead, we'll accept that one as, well, maybe so. We were considerably more suspicious about what the exit polls reveal on three other key swing states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and North Carolina. The exit polling information showed Clinton with a 3.9 percentage point lead in Wisconsin. When the votes were counted, Trump won by 0.7 percentage points. In Pennsylvania, she had an even bigger margin, 4.4 percent. But when the votes were counted, once again, Donald Trump had that 0.7 percent margin in his favor. These represent swings of 4.6 and 5.1 percent between the exit polling and the vote count, which is quite significant. And in North Carolina, another must-win state for Trump, Hillary Clinton on election day per exit polls had a 2.1% lead. When the votes were counted, Trump won by 3.6%. That is a 5.7% swing in the vote count. We hope to bring on some statisticians in the future. 
including Jonathan D. Simon, whose article in Mint Press we recommend highly to you. I don't have the name of the article in front of me, but it, in the title it asked the question about whether the vote count had been rigged. So if you look up Jonathan D. Simon rigged in Mint Press, I'm sure the article will come up, and I hope you will do that. This topic is near and dear to the heart of Jonathan D. Simon. He's written a book titled Code Red, Computerized Election Theft and the New American Century. In the article by Jonathan D. Simon, he refers to Nate Silver's predictions. Nate Silver's star has fallen considerably since he supposedly failed to predict the outcome of this election, although, as mentioned, he gave Trump a one in three chance, which was far better than almost any other statistician in the country had done. But even Nate Silver's generous, what you might even say as pro-Trump evaluation on election day, gave the following percentage point possibilities for Clinton's victories in these key states. In Wisconsin, Silver had an 84% for Clinton. In Michigan, 80%. In Pennsylvania, 77%. In North Carolina, 55%. In Florida, the same, 55%. From a statistical standpoint, that Trump could run the table on those five is a 600 to one shot. Now we realize that some people go up to Reno and, and Las Vegas and, and cash in on those 600 to 1 odds and come home winners. But we don't think that's what happened on Election Day. So what the hell happened on Election Day? Slate.com noted that North Carolina eliminated 27 polling places for the election and cut hours at other sites, producing long lines that required voters to wait for hours. Well, based on our previous experience and witnessing what happened in Ohio in 2004, we're pretty sure those long lines were in Democratic precincts. Slate.com noted that other Republican-controlled states freed of Voting Rights Act restrictions also dramatically cut the number of polling places, including Texas, which closed 403, Louisiana 103, Alabama 68, and Arizona, which closed 140 of its 200 sites. But the reaction of the national news media to this story on Election Day and up to the present has been to say, gosh, the pollsters got it wrong again. Well, not exactly. The national election polls were pretty much exactly on the money when it came to predicting Hillary Clinton's edge. Things only went haywire in some states. Writing in Bloomberg.com, Michelle Jamrisco and Terrence Dobbs said the polls blew it. <laughs> in the end, Donald Trump delivered a commanding performance that virtually no professional pollster saw coming, despite a mountain of mathematical models and sophisticated survey methods. Okay, stop right there. Isn't, isn't that a little suspicious? They went on to note the incredible misreading of the national move coming on the heels of pollsters' failure to predict the U.K.'s vote in June to leave the EU or to spot Colombia's rejection of a peace deal with rebels last month leaves the credibility of the polling industry in tatters and its practitioners facing questions on how they got it so wrong. Now, we hope to talk in the weeks to come about how there's something more insidious going on here. And, and one of those insidious things is the fact that some very clever companies have figured out how to mine data from the likes of Facebook and others and create very carefully crafted bits of fake news and misinformation, which is fashioned with your mind in mind, as the Firesign Theater once put it. This is no joke. We need to take a very hard look at this. People have been talking about the echo chamber on, uh, on Facebook, and there's something to be said for the fact that we are influenced by 
those we like and subjects we like, and that therefore this echo chamber effect is dividing the country. That's no doubt true. It is Radio Parallax's suspicion, however, that it's all way, way worse than that. It seems pretty clear, since it came up last summer during the campaign, that the Russians were up to some monkey business in the American political campaign, that, um, well, it, it seems clear that it wasn't a random interference in the political campaign, that the Russians much preferred Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton. And indeed, one of the most puzzling aspects about Donald Trump, who doesn't seem to have much good to say about anybody, is that he does not say anything bad about Russia or Vladimir Putin. Despite denials by Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, it is widely believed by many sources that Moscow's cyber warriors are thought to be responsible for what's got to WikiLeaks concerning those emails from Hillary Clinton to her campaign chairman, John Podesta. We know that hackers tried to access state electoral machinery before Election Day in a clear attempt to test for weaknesses, but people have concluded, yeah, but they didn't get anywhere. Well, we think maybe they did get somewhere. We think maybe they did get to 0.7% Trump advantages in, say, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. After all, that was just enough, just enough to put those states in the Trump camp. Put them back in Hillary Clinton's column, and she is one state away from victory. Now, does Radio Parallax have any proof that Russian hackers were involved in the theft of the election? Well, no, we don't. But we think it's clear from doing maybe 15 or 20 shows on the topic that our elections are not safe. And in particular, electronic voting machines have been shown to be hackable. And, you know, just as an aside, it should be noted that about the time FBI Director James Comey was coming forward to tell the public there was some pretty suspicious stuff going on about Hillary Clinton, the FBI was aware of the fact there was some pretty suspicious stuff going on between Russia and Donald Trump. Guess which one they decided to act on. And then there's the small matter of Donald Trump's national security advisor, three-star general Michael Flynn. It is known, for example, that he made several calls in December to the Russian ambassador to the U.S., Sergei Kislyak. Those took place on the same day that the Obama administration imposed sanctions. If you'll recall, the response from Russia was quite muted. Putin said he was going to take no action in regards to this. Now, some suspected that perhaps Flynn was telegraphing the news to Russia that the Trump administration was not going to put sanctions in place. So they didn't worry about this too much. For his part, Flynn, when asked about this, denied that any such conversation had taken place. And he told the vice president, Mike Pence, the same thing. And Pence assured the nation on one of the talk shows that, well, there's no way that, uh, you know, that uh, security advisor uh, General Flynn did anything like that. Except that, well, it turns out that there's evidently some evidence based on transcripts, based on people in the government that are listening to, well, everybody, the NSA. Um, there seems to be some compelling evidence that Flynn, in fact, did bring up the subject of sanctions and assured the Russians that it was going to be okay and realized that he was caught. Now, of course, the president's reaction has been uh, to say that this is an outrage, that, uh, <laughs> that people in the security apparatus were leaking such top-secret conversations between his security advisor and the Russian ambassador. Of course, I have to note, somebody did report on Facebook, much to my amusement. Uh, they put two pictures of Trump from, I guess it was October, quoting him as saying, 
what does it matter what the source of this information is? It's the content that's important, referring to Hillary Clinton's emails. Fast forward <laughs> to the current Flynn brouhaha when Trump's position was, it doesn't matter what the content is, it's the method of how this thing got leaked that's key. At this point, it seems pretty clear to everybody that there are forces in Washington and perhaps elsewhere that are resisting the current president of the United States. It's been noted that the deep state, and by that we're referring to, in essence, the powers that be, the Wall Street bankers, the big oil money, and the people they direct, in other words, the Central Intelligence Agency and the NSA, which are mounting some resistance to Donald Trump. And I must say, in my entire life, I have never seen anything stranger than the current battle lines that are being drawn between those who are skeptical of the fact that there's any Russian connection to the election. I, I don't mean the radio parallax version of the Russian connection to the election, meaning that we think it was actually hacked, but just in the broader sense, the fact that they interfered with the process to assist Donald Trump. It seems that the likes of Glenn Greenwald, who we respect immensely, Matt Taibbi, who we respect immensely, David Talbot, who we respect immensely enough to bring him on the show three times, and our good pal Jeannie Keltner over at Access Television in Sacramento, all seem to be lining up on this idea that this, this is preposterous. This is the, the deep state trying to overthrow our democratically elected government, which leaves me just scratching my head. When people like Bill Kristol, a man who Radio Parallax has probably never once agreed with in our entire run, says that maybe the deep state's going to reach out and save us from Donald Trump, well, we kind of think, yeah, maybe they will. And maybe in this particular instance, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. But the way it's being framed by so many people is that, you know, the deep state is going to reach out and basically overthrow the Constitution. And... Uh, just run things by decree, which frankly, we think is pretty unlikely. There are a lot of in-betweens in this, and for that, we think there's probably no source we could recommend more highly than that of Professor Peter Dale Scott of UC Berkeley, a man who is pretty much associated with the term deep politics and the deep state, although he says that he didn't invent them. But he has pointed out the interventions that have been made in the past by... <laughs> I guess what you'd call extra-governmental sources of power. Some of the most prominent examples that Professor Scott has cited in the past are the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Watergate. Examples where apparently the deep state went out and changed the course of what the government and the executive branch was doing. In one case, by the use of bullets. In the second case, by the use of a very strange burglary that had to be covered up. And yes, it is our position that uh, what you've heard about Watergate ain't necessarily so. Uh, Watergate is portrayed as an example of the press, the crusading press doing the right thing and eliminating a crook from office. But it's a lot more complicated than that. The best evidence suggests that the Watergate burglary was a CIA operation all the way, and it was done for the purpose of making Richard Nixon very nervous about this burglary, which he did not order, but realized that but the connections of it to him would be very bad for him. And they certainly turned out to be, although not in the way he anticipated. It was the cover-up that got him out of office. 
Well, this is a topic that's worth of about three shows. Unfortunately, we have no time for that today. We'll have to bring this to a close, I think, by noting that we're going to, in the weeks to come, bring some statisticians and other people on the program who will look at um, this battle of Trump and the deep state. Personally, we have a hard time finding anybody wearing a white hat in this particular Western. But we think this probably frames what's going on in this battle in Washington better than, well, most sources in the media have been providing in their analysis. Well, in the five to eight minutes we have left, uh, let's just talk about what's happened since um, Donald Trump became president, shall we? Everyone keeps talking about the 100 days, the 100 days. We haven't even reached day 35 yet, have we? But uh, apparently about a week or two ago, the president called Mike Flynn, his national security advisor, at 3 a.m. and asked whether a strong dollar or a weak dollar was better for the U.S. economy. His national security advisor suggested that he call an economist. <laughs> and I'm sorry, you just, you just have to laugh. Philip Bump, writing in the WashingtonPost.com, noted that during the presidential campaign, Trump relentlessly criticized Hillary Clinton for jeopardizing national security by using her private email server. But let's just take a look at what happened down at Mar-a-Lago recently. Trump was there with the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The two leaders were continuing their conversation as Trump received word about North Korea's launch of ballistic missiles. Well... At that point, aides used the camera lights on their cell phones to light up documents on the table, described as a mind-boggling security breach, since foreign hackers can easily turn on cell phone cameras and microphones to snoop. Trump seemed to be making calls during the crisis on his old, insecure Android phone, which experts say would be extremely easy to hack. And to top it off, one of Trump's paying guests later posted on Facebook a photo of himself posing with the presidential aide who carries the nuclear football used to authorize an attack when the president is away from the White House. Now, how's that for some sound security? Woo! <laughs> and, you know, Trump during the campaign had some pretty nasty things to say about Goldman Sachs because the country, you know, that, that would resonate with, uh, with his people. So it is a little odd if you step back from it and realize that probably the second most popular man in Washington right now is Steve Bannon, who formerly ran the crackpot right-wing website Breitbart.com. Um, before that, of course, he was a Goldman Sachs banker. I have to admit, I never heard of Breitbart News until Breitbart himself died a couple years back when the person I work with started saying, oh, yes, I, 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 we knew him. I'm like, you did. Yeah, you know Breitbart. I'm like, no, I don't know Breitbart. I don't read Breitbart. Vox.com described it as home of the white nationalist alt-right. Well, Steve Bannon uh, apparently also has led the administration's war on journalists, telling the media to keep its mouth shut. And an unprecedented move for a political operative, Bannon was, last month, given a full seat on the National Security Council, the president's key advisory group on foreign policy. Now, it's true he apparently was in the Navy 35 years ago. But the Washington Post that that hardly qualifies him to advise the president on national security issues. The Post noted that incredibly, Trump has given Bannon a more powerful NSC role than the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the director of national intelligence, who will henceforth only attend council meetings when, quote, their specific expertise is seen to be required, end quote. <sighs> And of course, we would refer you to um, 
the internet to just have a laugh at Anderson Cooper's reaction to Kellyanne Conway referring to the controversy over Trump's inaugural crowds as the alternate facts they were presenting. Anderson Cooper just can't stop laughing at the phrase alternate facts. As we noted, I think, on last week's program, uh, in the wake of this, this talk about alternate facts, apparently sales of George Orwell's 1984 are soaring. We probably should mention that speech that Trump made over at CIA headquarters talking about how we should be using all the oil from Iraq and mentioning to the CIA guys, well, maybe you get another chance. Apparently, uh, the Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, had to go over to Iraq and say, no, no, we're not going to plunder all of your oil. And the administration also evidently sent Mike Pence over to Europe to assure all of our traditional allies that, no, things were not, things were not going out of control crazy in Washington. I'm sorry to say it looks as though we are pretty much out of time, but I hate to end on any kind of a downer here. When <laughs> you're talking about Donald Trump, you're pretty much painted in a corner. Well, anyway, let's, let's, take the, let's take the discussion off of Donald Trump and talk about another New Yorker with a rather shady financial background, Bernie Madoff. As you may recall, the disgraced money manager, age 78, is currently serving a 150-year prison sentence for swindling investors out of $65 billion in the world's largest Ponzi scheme. Well, journalist Steve Fishman decided to catch up with Madoff in prison. <laughs> he discovered that, well, he may be behind bars, but he's still running a racket, only this time in hot chocolate. Evidently, Bernie took the opportunity to go down to the commissary and buy up every package of Swiss Miss, which he then sold at a profit. And it may be more than Swiss Miss. It's been hinted that um, if you wanted anything, you had to go through Bernie at North Carolina's Butner Prison. Fellow prisoners say they don't mind his profiteering. One of them was quoted as saying, he stole more money than anyone in history. That makes him a hero. So, Mr. Ringland, I think you should go out with some heroic music. But let's turn it back on to Trump. Let's find something that's appropriate, I think, for Donald Trump's presidency and has a rather heroic nature to it. How about the Russian national anthem? I would note, you've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your host, Douglas Everett. This program was produced, as all of them are, by Mr. Edward McMillan. It's good to be back. We may not be back every single week, but we're going to do the best we can. And we'll hopefully see you again next week.